So today we are in part two of our series titled Tasteless, which itself is part two of our journey through the story of Scripture. And the reason we're doing a series of series like this is because I think a lot of people know some stories in the Bible, but a lot of people don't know the story of the Bible. And I think, you know, a lot of people know just enough of the Bible that they, you know, feel justified in dismissing the whole thing. But if we knew the whole story, I believe that we'd feel differently about it. Now, if you've been with us, you may have caught on to the fact that each week as we recap the story, new details emerge that help us understand the grand narrative. So it's important that you're with us each week, or at least listening to the previous messages on our app or through our website or by subscribing to our podcast. So in the beginning, we learn that God is taking a chaotic situation somewhere, purposeful and beautiful, And at the pinnacle of this creation account is man and woman made in his image, to co-rule and to co-labor with him. He didn't create humanity to consume his goodness and grace and his love, but to receive his goodness and then give it away, to receive his grace and give it away, to receive his love and then give it away. As they too progress creation and take the chaos somewhere purposeful and beautiful. See, that is our vocation as humans, to work with God in his restoration project. But, of course, we abandoned this vocation. Instead of choosing love for God and one another, as we were designed to do as humans, we chose self-priority, self-ambition, self-centeredness. And all sorts of things begin to go wrong. The first son, Cain, murders his brother, Abel. And as a result of the murder, we're told that Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Now, Eden was, of course, paradise, the place where everything is right and God's favor and peace rests on everything. (laughs) But Cain is not there. He's east of there, and he's building a city, a focal point for human development. The point of this is that something has gone horribly wrong with humanity, and that from the very beginning, humans are moving in the wrong direction. And I don't think I need to give you examples of this. I think we know it. I think we know it deep in our bones that humanity is moving in the wrong direction. Just think of a time you were hurt by someone, or the last time that you hurt someone. What did he or she do to you? What did you do to them? I bet it was because he or she or you acted out of selfish interest and didn't consider or care how this action would impact the person who was hurt. So you feel it. Every single day we feel it. We feel the pain deep in our bones. We have stepped outside relationship with God. We've abandoned our vocation to love and we've stepped, uh, we've stopped functioning as humans and every time we do that, we end up hurt. And we end up hurting others. You see, the implications of this are massive, and they're implications that we're going to wrestle with throughout the series and beyond. The Germans have a word for this. They call it Ursprache. It's the primal, original language of the human family. It's the language of paradise that still echoes in the deepest recesses of our conscience, telling us that things are out of whack, that something's not right, that how we relate to one another is twisted and distorted, and deep within us we long for something different and more. After Cain kills Abel, we're told that Abel's blood cries out to God from the ground. See, God can hear the injustice crying out to him, and of course, as the story goes, it's the way humans treat one another that is the focal point of all the pain. Because every time we abandon right relationship with God, we're going to hurt, and we're always going to hurt others. And the culmination of this is hurt is seen in Exodus And God's people, who he's promised through, he'd redeem the world and make the world happy again, find their way into Egypt because of a famine in the land. Egypt was the superpower of the day. Ruled by Pharaoh, and he responds to the threat of the growing number of Israelites in his country by forcing them into slavery. They had to work every day without bricks, um, without breaks, making bricks, building storehouses for Pharaoh. See, Egypt is an empire built on the back 
of Israelite slave labor. But the right, right away in the book of Exodus, there is a disruption. Things change, and change begins with God saying, I have indeed seen the misery of my people. I've heard them crying out. I've come down to rescue them. I've seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. You see, this is a God who sees and a God who hears their cry. The Hebrew word for cry is sa'ak. It's the word we say when we're wounded. It's the ouch, the cry. But isn't sa'ak also always a question? The question that we ask when we're wounded by another, the question we ask when we're in pain, where is the justice? Did anybody see that? Did anybody hear that? Does anybody care? Is anybody going to come to the rescue? Who will vindicate me? Or am I all alone? See, Sa'ak is what Abel's blood does from the ground. The Israelites are oppressed in pain and misery. They're suffering, and when they cry out, God hears. This is the central to who God is. He always hears the cry of the oppressed. And it is this cry that inaugurates redemptive history. It kicks things into gear. It shakes them up, and it gets them moving. The cry is the catalyst, the cause, the reason that a new story begins. Because God doesn't just hear the cry. He does something about it. The exodus is how God responds to the cry. Now, you know, maybe this is a generational thing, but I, I think a lot of us were told when we were hurt to suck it up and get over it, to rub some dirt on it and move on. Don't be weak, be a man. And, uh, you know, I think it's left generations hardened and hollow. And I think it's made our job as the church a hundred times harder as well, because if it's true, as I believe it is, that all those who are far from God are hurting, then our neighbors and our coworkers and our friends and our family and some of you are hurting but they're not going to show it, right? They're going to bury it under affluence and money and work and pills and drinking. They'll present you a mask of peace, but behind it, they're a mess. And they don't know what to do about it. They understand that, they, they don't understand that crying out and seeking the God of justice is the catalyst and the cause to a new story for them, and it's a new story for you as well. So think for a moment, you know, what, what are the times that have shaped you most? What are the periods of transformation, you know, those times when your eyes were opened and decisions were made that most affected the rest of your life? How many of them came when you reached the end of your rope, when everything fell apart, when you were powerless, when there was nothing left to do but cry out? I, I, I think for most of us, it was our cry, it was our desperation, the acknowledgement of our oppression that was the beginning of liberation, because when you're on top, when the system works for us, and the paychecks are rolling in, and the family's together, and the sun is shining, and we're capable of managing our lives, I mean, come on, really, what is there for God to do? And for a lot of people, they'd rather present themselves as put together than acknowledge the hurt and fear and sadness that they're experiencing. But it is the cry that inaugurates redemptive history. See, these slaves in Egypt cry out, and God hears, and something new happens. He rescues them from Egypt. Now, if you've been with us in this series, you'll know that, yes, Egypt is a place and a nation, but it's actually so much more. Remember that Adam and Eve made one decision to abandon God, and within one generation, humans are murdering each other. Why? Because every time we abandon relationship with God, we always end up hurt, and we always end up hurting others. You see, the decay of human civilization is rapid, isn't it? I mean, within just a few generations of humans murdering each other, God looked at them and, and couldn't find life in anyone. The whole story of the first 11 chapters of the Bible is all about how the world is at odds with God. It's a tragic progression of how the toxic, broken nature of the heart of a few humans has spread to the whole world. What started in the garden has now affected the whole globe. 
God's kingdom has an opposing force, right? There is an anti-kingdom at war against God. And so imagine a slave girl in Egypt. She's asking her father, you know, why has he got a bandage on his arm? And he tells her he was beaten by his master that day. She naturally wants to know why. He explains to her that the quotas have recently been changed and he's now required to make the same amount of bricks, but now he has to collect his own straw. He tells her that he's been falling behind in his brick production and that's why he was beaten. She then asks why his, ma- why his master couldn't just let it slide. You know, why the beating? Well, he explains that if the quotas aren't met, his master will be beaten by his master. And if his master doesn't make the quotas, he'll be beaten by his overseer and so on up the chain of command all the way to the pharaoh. The father tries to make the daughter understand that, yes, the beating came from one particular man, his master, but his master is part of a larger system, a complex web of power and violence and industry and technology that exploits people for its own expansion and profit and benefit. The bandage on her father's arm is from a wound inflicted by one man, and yet it's also from an entire system of injustice. This girl's family is facing an evil in the individual human heart that went unchecked until it gathered a head of steam and is now embedded in the very fabric of this culture. That, my friends, is anti-kingdom. And Egypt is representation of all that is in opposition to God. Egypt is what happens when sin is left unchecked. Egypt is what happens when sin becomes structured and embedded in society. Egypt shows us how easily human nature bends towards using power to preserve privilege at the expense of the weak. And the Exodus is God's liberation for one people from this bondage so that this people can liberate the world from slavery to sin. You see, God wants to do good for one people so that through his people he can do good for the whole world. Moses is introduced as the liberator, God parts the sea, the people walk through it, they celebrate their liberation, they set up camp around the mountain of Sinai. And on that mountain, God speaks, and right here, God sets into motion the reversal of the consequences of Eden. He begins by saying this, you yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Right? It's all grace. From the very beginning, it's all grace. It's a gift. God did this. He rescued. He provided. It's all received from God. Now, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, that if right there means this is conditional. The Israelites have a responsibility before God. The promise God made to Abraham that he would bless all the world and fix the problem was unconditional. God God is going to do that. It doesn't matter what the people do. God will be true to his promise. But here God is saying, if you stay in relationship with me, if you remain faithful to me, then you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Priests were mediators. They showed the world who and what their God was like. They illustrated to the world what their God cared about. This people are tasked with the responsibility to show the world who this God is and what this God is like. If you stay in relationship with me, you will live into your vocation to represent me, to be my image bearers. You see, God is inviting his people back into Eden. God is setting this people apart from the anti-kingdom ways that they knew in Egypt. He doesn't want a people enslaved to greed and violence and abuse of power and people selfishly reigning over one another, but a holy nation known by compassion and justice and mercy and concern for one's neighbor. And in this way, they'll represent him to the world. All the world will know who this God is because of what these people do. It's almost as if God is saying, you know, you've experienced Egypt and you know how horrible it was, so now I want you to be the anti-Egypt. So when God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery, he's really saying that the only way you can understand the covenant relationship is to understand what you've already been through. Their relationship is rooted in an act of deliverance that God has performed on their behalf. This is not an abstract God who floats above the pain of the world. This is a God who is fundamentally defined by his action on behalf of the oppressed. 
And it's here with their liberation fresh in their minds that he gives them 10 instructions on what it means to be humans representing him. Mainly they are to love him and love another, uh, one another. Real, realizing that slavery is such an inhuman experience, God is teaching these people what it means to be human again and what it means to live in authentic human community. And so the first command instructs them to have no other gods because if they forsake this God who liberated them, they are at the very same, ti- same time forgetting their story. And if they forget their story, they might forget what it was like to be slaves and they might find themselves back in a new sort of slavery. The second command builds on the first. They weren't to make an image or a representative figure of God in the form of anything. The reason being because God already has a representation of himself in these people. And the third command traditionally states that we ought not to misuse the name of God. The Hebrew word misuse can also be translated carry, however. God has redeemed these former slaves and he has now invited them to be representatives in the world of his redemption and, and the God who made it happen. They are how the world will know who this God is. So God's reputation is going to depend on how these people carry God's name. It's a command about how Israel will carry herself as she carries the name of God. Will she act on behalf of the poor and the oppressed as God does? Or will she cave into the anti-kingdom and be influenced by the world around her? The Ten Commandments are a new way to be human. A new way to move and to live in the world. And to drive the point home, he provides them another 603 examples of loving and caring for one another. And the reason they must learn to be human again is because if they begin to oppress one another and selfishly reign over one another on an individual basis, then they will become like Pharaoh. And the fact is that God always works against people like Pharaoh. So God warns them not to mistreat or oppress the foreigner. For you are foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of a widow or an orphan. Do not deny justice to your poor people. Because if you do any of these things and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. See, God is saying that the thing that has happened to you, go and make happen for others. That the freedom from oppression that you've experienced, go help others experience that same freedom. The grace that has been extended to you when you were at your lowest, extended to others. Go out to those who are hurting and lonely and invite them home. See, this is an invitation to truly be the people of God who represent God faithfully to the world. But we already know from last week that the people didn't do it well. They failed to drive out the anti-kingdom, so they became enslaved to it all over again. At the height of it, they wanted a king, such as all the other nations have. Now, this is really such a bold request from a people who were to be holy and set apart, unlike the nations, so that they could represent God well to those nations. And God, of course, realizes what's going on here, and and he tells the prophet Samuel, it is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt. Samuel the prophet, he tries to scare the king out of them, but they insist, no, we want a king over us, then we will be like all of the other nations. So they get a king named Saul, who is insecure and petty, so he dies and David takes the throne. David is a great king, though he's certainly not without his faults. He secured their borders, the land, and the people are experiencing peace, and then David has a son named Solomon. Solomon was brilliant. He was wise. I mean, so many of the Old Testament books, not so many, but a few of the Old Testament books, Ecclesiastes, Song of Songs, some of the prover- uh, most of the Proverbs, uh, some of the Psalms, are all attributed to Solomon. He was brilliant, he was wise, he was wealthy, and Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom, begins to gain global recognition. A queen from the land of Sheba comes to visit Solomon. 
Now, she's from far away. She's from a different land and people and religion, but she wants to know all about these people and their king and their God in Jerusalem. And really, wasn't that what Sinai was all about? That God wanted a people who he could bless so that through them all the world would know who God is and what he is like? And then the world would come back into right relationship with him? And now it's happening. Foreigners from the corners of the earth are coming to ask questions and learn who God is. So Sheba tests Solomon and learns of the wisdom of this God. She eats with him and learns of how this God blesses. She watches him worship in the temple and learns of this God's compassion. And after surveying the kingdom, she's determined. Because of the Lord's eternal love for Israel, he has made you king to maintain justice and righteousness. No, notice that she doesn't say is maintaining justice and righteousness, only that there can be only one reason why he has received so much blessings from God, to maintain justice and righteousness. And what does she mean by justice and righteousness? Well, freedom and liberation from anything dehumanizing, anything anti-kingdom, anything that's in opposition to God's ideal for the human person and the human community. She understands that God has given all of this wealth and all of this power and all of this influence to Solomon so that Solomon would use it on behalf of those who have none. So what did Solomon do with his wealth and influence and power? What kind of kingdom did he build? Well, the Bible tells us, here is the account of the forced labor King Solomon constructed to build the Lord's temple, his own palace, the terraces, the walls of Jerusalem. And another word for forced labor is... Slaves. Solomon had slaves. Slaves who labored to build the temple, palace, and other buildings. Wait, 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 wait. wait. The, the, the temple of the God who set slaves free was built by slaves? You see, the oppressed have become the oppressor. The ancestors of people who once cried out because of their bondage are now causing others to cry out. The descendants of people who once longed for freedom from Egypt are now building another Egypt. In a few generations, these wandering former slaves who were newly rescued from an oppressive empire have become empire builders themselves, embodying the very thing God was wanting them to stamp out. Solomon isn't maintaining justice. He's perpetuating the very injustice his people once needed redemption from, and in the process builds himself a kingdom of comfort built on the back of slave labor. And not only did he use the slave labor to build the temple and his palace. We're also told he used it to build Hazar, Megiddo, and Gezer. We typically roll right past verses like this, thinking that they're, you know, insignificant details, but this really isn't. These three cities were military bases. Solomon is using his massive resources and wealth to build military bases to protect his massive resources and wealth. Not only that, we're told that Solomon accumulated 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horses, which he kept in the chariot cities and also with him in Jerusalem. Now, this is important because he imported them from Egypt. Jerusalem has become the new Egypt. There's a new pharaoh on the scene, and his name is Solomon. Not only is he accumulating horses and chariots, which were the tanks and firefighter planes of his day, but we're told that he imported a chariot from Egypt for 600 shekels of silver and a horse for 150. They also exported them to all the kings of the Hittites and of the Arameans, importing and exporting, buying and selling. I mean, Solomon has become an arms dealer. He's now making money off of violence. He's discovered that war is profitable. So a couple of questions. Is that maintaining justice and righteousness? 
Is that hearing the cries of the oppressed? Is that looking out for the widow and the orphan and the foreigner? Soon after this, we learn that Solomon had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and his wives led him astray. His wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord, his God. I mean, really, the bachelor's got nothing on Solomon, right? But the point is not the numbers. It's the extent by which his heart had abandoned God. This is no longer about systemic evils he was propagating. This is about the individual heart. Solomon has broken covenant with God. You see, the first commandment was that they would have no other gods. Sinai was a marriage between God and the people. The first command was that the people would have no other lovers. The relationship simply wouldn't work if the people were unfaithful. Solomon's many wives represented just how far the nation as a whole had strayed from God. And tragically, it was warned that this would happen. Moses said earlier that the king must not acquire great numbers of horses for himself or make the people return to Egypt to get more of them. For the Lord has told you, you are not to go back that way again. He must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. So here we are. Jerusalem is the new Egypt, Solomon is the new Pharaoh, and Sinai has long been forgotten. Which really puts God in an awkward place, doesn't it? Remember that God is looking for a representative that will faithfully show the world who God is and what he is like and what he cares for. So what happens when your representative looks nothing like you? What happens when your people become the embodiment of everything you are against? What happens when you're given a bad name? What happens when your people aren't faithful to the vow they made to you? See, at the height of their power, Israel misconstrued God's blessing as favoritism and entitlement. They became indifferent to God and to their priestly calling to bring liberation to others. So, Solomon has a son who takes over the throne. And the people of the land come to him crying out because of their slavery. And instead of preserving justice for his people... This new king says, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. And so the people rebelled and the kingdom divided. Israel became the northern kingdom, Judah the southern. But God wasn't done with these people quite yet. His patience and love and compassion still had a little fuel left in the tank. So God sent prophet after prophet to warn his people to the consequences of their infidelity and to welcome them back. The prophet Amos said, Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you, against the whole family I brought up out of Egypt. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who stores up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. See, his first concern is that the poor are neglected while the others are stockpiling surplus. You're oppressing one another. That's what the Egyptians did to you. That's what I freed you from. So why are you doing it to one another? Amos is crying out. Amos says that God hates their worship. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. Your hollow religion disgusts me, in other words. You see, I don't think God cares what we present before him if our hearts are not bent towards him. The music, the sacrifices, the prayers, the burning of incense, everything they did before God, which they also did before a hundred other gods, was pointless. It was a mask covering up the injustice and the selfishness which ran rampant in the land. And it just goes on and on and on. I mean, every prophet, page after page, speaks out against the, pa- the, 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 the people of God abusing their calling. And because of their selfish interests, propagating injustice throughout the land. You see, God's plea was that justice would roll on like a river. 
that righteousness would roll on like a never-failing stream, but the people just would not listen. And so God says, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting, your lounging, they're coming to an end. You see, when someone comes to you and says something like this, you can either respond by humbling yourselves, acknowledging its truth and repenting, or you can say, get out. Don't prophesy anymore because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. I mean, come on, of course the king hates the message. But Amos, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Hosea, all the prophets, they came to remind the people of Sinai of the covenant God had made with them and their responsibility to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation to represent him well to the world. But the people just would not listen. You see, we're told that God sent the prophets because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. See, God wants to be with his people, but they just aren't interested in being with him. Rather, they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets. Amos was kicked out. Jeremiah was beaten, imprisoned, thrown into a pit. The prophets were all hunted down and killed. The people would not listen, and they would not change. They didn't remember Egypt. They'd forgotten Sinai. And so God suffers. God waits. God is patient, but there comes a time when nothing more can be done. Eventually, Israel is destroyed by Assyria in 722 B.C. And as for Judah, in 586 B.C., the king of the Babylonians killed their young men with the sword and the sanctuary and spared neither young men nor young women, the elderly or the aged, He carried to Babylon all of the articles from the temple of God, both large and small, and the treasures of the Lord's temple and the treasures of the king and the officials. They set fire to God's temple and broke down the wall of Jerusalem. They burned all the palaces and destroyed everything of value there. He carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and his successors until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The temple is destroyed. Jerusalem is burned to the ground. Many are killed, and those who aren't are dragged away against their will to Babylon where they become servants. And what do we call servants who serve against their will? Slaves. The Israelites find themselves once again as slaves in a foreign land. And so, one quick question, and then I'm going to let you go. What do we do with this? I, I mean, everything changes when Jesus comes on the scene, and we'll get to that in a couple weeks, but pl- realize this morning, and, and please realize that the vocation of God's people hasn't changed. We are still to be a holy nation and a priestly nation. We are to represent God to the world. And I think we need a prophetic voice for the modern day that will wake the church up to realizing that we too have a responsibility. You see, we are empowered as the church, as, as people of God, as the people of Christ, to maintain justice and righteousness in our land, which means that we need to be a voice for those who do not have one. And from our strength to lift the weak up. And we are to inspire those who are far from God to engage right relationship with God I mean, come on, all around us is a world that is far from God, and every time you are far from God, you hurt. See, but one of the challenges we face, and we've talked about this already briefly, is that our world has buried that hurt under affluence and money and television and shopping and pills and drugs and alcohol and work and religious effort. And our world is trying to convince us that we're fine. But come on, ask anyone to be honest with you, and you'll discover that they're not. 
So we must be those who go into the world not to speak judgment and condemnation over it, not to belittle the world and shame the world, not to draw dividing lines around everything in order to keep the unworthy out, but also not to dismiss sinful behavior as good. Now we need to help the world acknowledge how hurting it is. And with the fullness of both grace and truth, with the fullness of both grace and truth, calling sin, sin, and hurt, hurt, to embrace the world in love and compassion, offer it forgiveness through Jesus and invite it home. Where it's no longer far from God, but now it's in right relationship with him where healing and restoration can be found. So friends, anytime anyone expresses pain, extend an invitation to them. Anytime anyone expresses confusion, extend an invitation to them. Anytime anyone expresses sadness or despair or loneliness, extend an invitation, an invitation to Jesus, an invitation to peace, to forgiveness, to purpose, to Restoration Church, where they can be enveloped in a community who will love them here. Now, some of you are thinking, Ross, why would I go out to those who have hurt me? Why would I go to those people who have hurt me in the past? And the answer is, because God came out to you. And and do you know why God came out to you? Because he knew that when you were far from him, that you were hurting. And so he didn't look upon you with disgust and anger and bitterness and resentment. No, he looked upon you with compassion. And my friends, we represent God to the world. And so be very careful, friends, how you live Let's make the most of every opportunity because the days in which we live, are they not evil? Of course they are evil. Turn on the news. There are horrible atrocities happening all around us. We live in a horrible, painful world. The days are evil, so do not be foolish. But know, my friends, that you represent God to a very hurting world. You see, bitterness and resentment and revenge and fear, and that's human. But compassion, forgiveness, love, and these are divine. My friends, so let's do this. I mean, isn't there too much at stake for us not to do this? We have such a huge responsibility in front of us. Let's do this. Let's be the church. Let us love our community well. Let us go to those who are hurting and not extend anger towards them or judgment towards them, but let us extend compassion towards them and invite them into the healing of Jesus Christ. I invite you back here next week, and I I invite you to invite those who you know who are far from God. Because the next two weeks of this series, yes, you know, the story is still bleak. We're still in this portion of the story where there's a lot of sadness and darkness and exile and pain. But hope is going to begin to break through. And then when Jesus arrives, of course, everything changes. But my friends, invite, 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 invite. It would be cruel of us not to invite a very hurting world into the healing that we've discovered in Jesus Christ. My friends, we must be a people who are constantly inviting our community into the love of God.